after. Okay. Welcome. Welcome. I want to uh, take a few moments today to try to talk about a lot of different things. We uh, are starting late, so we'll see if we have a chance to do everything. But I want to touch on a few themes in the Parsha. This week's Parsha is Parsis Vyeshev. And I'll go through a couple of the themes there. And then I'd like to see if we can tie together some of the themes from the Parsha and connect it to the upcoming holiday of Hanukkah. For those of you who are celebrating the upcoming holiday of Thanksgiving, I highly recommend listening to my class on Thanksgiving and Judaism. It's very interesting. You guys remember it from last year? About the turkey, anyone? The secret of turkey? When did I say that? There, right. You were there. Okay, yeah, good. So it was good, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So, yes. Listen to that if you're interested in learning about Judaism at Thanksgiving. But anyway, regarding this week's themes and Hanukkah, okay? Um, hopefully we'll have a class next Wednesday as well, and we'll try to go into some other aspects of Hanukkah. But for this week, let's talk about the Parsha. So this Parsha is really begins the story of Yosef. Joseph. The favorite son of Yaakov. And we begin learning that Yosef is a dreamer of dreams. And Yosef has dreams of grandeur, of seeing himself in very high places with his brothers bowing down to him. And his brothers don't respond so well to his dreams. And they plot to kill him. And without getting into, there's so much to talk about, well, what's really going on beyond the scenes, but without getting into all the different theories, I think the simple explanation is that they believed he was the bad seed, right? Abraham had a Yishmal and a Yitzchak. Yitzchak was the son that was meant to pass on Judaism through. Yishmal got the negative sides of Abraham. Yitzchak had Yaakov and an Esau. Yaakov became the father of the next generation of the Jewish people, and Esau got the negative aspects of Yitzchak. Now, Yaakov had 12 sons, and the brothers believed that perhaps Yosef was that bad seed because he has these visions of grandeur. He seems to be fairly physical. He's constantly doing his hair, and uh, he cares about how he looks, and he speaks badly about them to, to their father. He tells their father, the father all sorts of things that they're doing wrong. And they feel like this kid has got to go. He's going to ruin the Jewish mission in the world. So they plot to kill him. And the last minute, they decide to throw him into a pit. And then one of the brothers, Reuven, goes and decides to throw him into the pit. And that when the other brothers aren't looking, he's going to save him and take him out of the pit. In the meantime, when Reuben's not looking, the other brothers decide, no, let's sell him. 
into slavery. They see a group of Arab merchants passing by and they sell him into slavery. And the merchants are um, are Arabs and they sell him to Midianites and the Midianites bring him to Egypt. And Yosef is sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, there is an interlude and we're told, we're told a different story. The story of Yehuda and Yehuda's familiar family problems. Yehuda is the fourth son of Yaakov, and Yehuda is uh, has leadership qualities, but he gets into some family problems. He marries off his daughter, his son, to a woman named Tamar. The son dies. Marries Tamar off to his second son. That son also dies. So according to Jewish law, really he's supposed to perform something called uh, Leverite marriage, something called Yibum, which is if a person is married without children and has a sibling, so if the husband dies without children, so then the wife is given the opportunity to marry the next son. And they can refuse, and there's a certain ritual to that, if they decide to refuse, called called Chalitza, uh, yeah, but um, if not, then, then they get married and continue his legacy, so to speak. So Yehuda is not sure if he wants to marry her off to his third son because there's a track record that she, his other sons didn't do so good in the marriage. And um, in the meantime, Tamar, who has a prophetic vision that she's supposed to have children through Yehuda, decides to take matters into her own hand. She dresses up like a harlot and goes to the street in the crossroads where Yehuda is passing and he has this uncontrollable desire and he goes and pays the harlot for her services or uh, doesn't pay her, he promises her payment and then goes on his merry way and three months later they find out that Tamar is expecting and Yehuda is very upset. My daughter-in-law went and uh, she was reserved to be married to my son and she went and did something she wasn't supposed to do and then she says, well, um, you know, whoever gave me these things, that's the person, who, that's the father of the child. And it's Yehuda's things that he gave her as collateral for the payment. And Yehuda admits it and they live happily ever after. Weird story, I'd say so. Um, but through this marriage, this child, so to speak, somewhat illegitimate child of Yehuda and Tamar comes uh, two twins, and one of those twins is named Peretz, and from Peretz eventually comes King David. So very interesting lineage of King David. One second, Julia. And finally, Yehuda, Yosef goes into Egypt, and now comes the story of The Graduate, starring Dustin Hoffman. If anyone ever saw that famous classic from 1960s. So Yosef is slave in, in Potiphar, Potiphar's house. He was a, uh, he was a, um, what do you call it? He was a, a priest in Egypt and his wife, Mrs. Robinson, I mean, Aisha's Potiphar takes a liking for um, Yosef and she keeps demanding that he do something with her and he constantly refuses, constantly refuses. And finally, she um, she attempts something with him one day when no one else is around. And Yosef runs away from her 
and leaves his clothing in her hands. He basically he basically like jumps out of his clothes and runs. And she starts screaming, this Jewish slave tried to rape me. And hence begins the Me Too movement. So Yosef, uh, except it was reversed, uh, kind of. And Yosef um, gets thrown into jail. And he finds himself in jail. And the saga continues. In jail, Yosef meets up with the butler and the baker, who are two of Paro's servants, who were just thrown into jail for certain minor uh, transgressions against the king. And one day, Yosef sees them both depressed. And he says, what's going on? Why you guys look so sad? And they say, because we each had dreams last night. And they tell him his dreams, and he interprets their dreams. And he says to one of them, your dream implies that in three days you'll be killed. That's the, um, that's the baker. And to the butler, the, really the, he's like the wine carrier, the cup carrier, he says, you will be saved in three days. Paro will re re release you. And he says, and please remember me to Paro when you get out. And the butler is freed in three days. The baker is killed. And the Torah ends on the note that the butler forgot about Yosef. And Yosef remained in the prison for another, I believe, three years. Okay, so... That's the end of the story. Questions on the story of this very action-packed, dramatic uh, Hollywood Parsha. Yes, Julia. Okay, there could be there could be there's other parts to that story, but we're not going into it so much detail tonight anyway. So Yes, that that is that's that is correct. It's good to attribute knowledge, but only when it's on the topic. So well let's see. Let's see where we're going with all this. <laughs> Hold on. But but yes, that is what the that's what the Torah says. The Talmud says explaining the the parsha you don't have to no please contribute but just wait until we see what direction we're going okay so what do i want to tell you about this parsha so i'll share with you one quick idea that really comes out in next week's parsha uh actually in two weeks parshas but it has to do with something that takes place in this week's parsha so rashi tells us that when ya that yosef that yaakov walked with yosef to greet his brothers they were, he walks him on the way to look for his brothers on that fateful day when Yosef was about to be uh, essentially assaulted by his brothers. And Yaakov taught Yosef the following mitzvah that would be eventually written in the Torah. And the mitzvah he taught him is a mitzvah called Egla Arufa, which is the mitzvah of a, a calf that had never done any work. And it's a very interesting mitzvah. The mitzvah is as follows, that if a dead body is found in the valley between two cities, so the elders of the city that is closest to the body come out and they take 
a calf that had never been worked, I believe, and they basically break its neck and slaughter it in this valley, and they wash their hands with the blood. You hear the expression, washing your hands of the blood. And they say, we did not kill this person. And one of the things that they say is that we we offered this person food for the way. And we offered to escort him partially into his journey. And through this, we so weird mitzvah, kind of strange, kind of bizarre. Why was Yaakov teaching specifically, the Talmud says, that Yaakov was teaching this mitzvah to Yosef as they were walking? Why this mitzvah? What's what's the connection? I want to come back to that. Okay, so let's let's now I'll, I'll now want to quote a medrash, and then we'll talk about Hanukkah. The medrash says that Yosef was sold down into slavery. Yaakov was mourning for the loss of his son. Yehuda was dealing with his family problems, and Hashem was bringing Mashiach. Interesting medrash, that somehow this whole Parsha is a precursor to the birth of Mashiach. So let's try to understand how that works. Okay, let's talk about Hanukkah now. Okay, Put aside everything we just discussed. We'll talk about Hanukkah for a few minutes and try to come back to the Parsha at the end. And Julia, if I miss any important information, let me know at the end. Okay? But the Parsha is so rich. I know, no, I love your contributions, but let's stay on focus. Okay. Yes, you should write a book. Um, I'm serious about that. You should. Um, maybe you write it. I'll, I'll edit it. I'll edit it. Okay. So the, let's talk about Hanukkah. What is the mitzvah of Hanukkah? Anybody? That's the miracle. But what's the actual mitzvah? We'll talk about the miracle probably on Sunday. I'll put it on the podcast. Yes, it is. But what do we do? Literally, what is the mitzvah? Lighting candles. Where, when, how? Great. Okay. So, we, yeah. So, we light candles for eight. That we all agree on. What? After sunset. Okay, good. So we light candles after or around sunset. Some people light right before sunset. And let them burn for 30 minutes after nightfall. Ah, ideally, the mitzvah should be with oil. Okay? And if you get the candles, you got to make sure those candles are going to burn for a half hour after nightfall, which is about uh, 45 minutes after sunset. So you got to get the good good candles. Oil is definitely the preferable custom. But let's talk about where we light, okay? And there happen to be that there are three customs of where we light. Three. And there's probably more than that, but three main customs. Where do you guys light? In the home where? Near a window. Great. Does, are any of you familiar with and that is the prevalent minha custom in America is to light in the window. Is anyone aware of any other customs of where to light the menorah? Ah, 
And where do they light outside? Their house. Who who does that? In Israel, all over Israel, most many many people light outside their houses, at the entrance to their courtyard of their building or the entrance to their building. You will find fish tanks. Everyone has a fish tank, and they have their their menorahs inside their fish tank. Right? That's interesting. There happens to be a third custom, and this is the Hasidic custom. Is anyone familiar with the third custom? This is what we do. We light inside the house. Happens to be we light near a window because we have a window next to our back door facing our neighbors, so our neighbors could see our menorah. But the custom is to light close to the ground within uh, 10 hand breaths of the ground, so about a foot from the ground and opposite a doorpost. So you have a mezuzah on one side, menorah on the other side on the ground. And that is predominantly the Hasidic custom, that even if there's no window, Hasidim will light inside their house next to a random doorway in their house. On the ground. Close to the ground. Not on the ground, but close to the ground. And the, so let, let me explain to you some of these customs. Okay? The Talmud says the reason for the lighting of the menorah is something called Prasumi Nisa, which means to publicize the, the mitzvah. When we lived in upstate New York, in Albany, we lived on a major road, like the road that went through the whole town. And we had this backdoor porch that literally faced the entire highway. And it was rush hour always when we were lighting candles. So we literally lit on that porch next to the doorway of that porch, facing the window so that the entire street saw the menorah. It was very cool. So we were literally fulfilling all of the opinions. Okay? But the Talmud says you're supposed to light outside your house in the gate of your courtyard. Opposite the mezuzah within 10 handbreadths of the floor. So the mitzvah of the menorah is to be lit outside, outside your house, at the inside the gate of your courtyard, opposite the mezuzah on the left side of the doorway, close to the ground. Says the Talmud, but in times of danger, you should light inside your house on the table. So it says. Times of danger. So, because there were times uh, when we lived in Babylon or in the Persian Empire, there were, I, th I believe, Zoroastrians who worshipped the god of darkness and a god of light. And in the winter, the god of darkness reigned supreme, that it was forbidden to light candles during the winter months. And that would look like you're worshipping the god of light in the time of the god of darkness. And therefore, because uh, you could be putting your life at, at risk, so we wouldn't light publicly during those times. Or at a time when there were, whatever, Christians or Muslims who would attack Jews for doing mitzvahs publicly, so you would light inside your house. So nowadays, there's no danger really to lighting a menorah. So then the question is, do we go back? What do we do? So in Israel, where we're back in our homeland and we feel comfortable and safe, so Jews returned, many Jews returned to doing it in the ideal fashion, which is lighting outside the door, publicly, in the street. In America, 
where uh, for whatever reason that custom didn't come back. So then there's a dispute. We're not going to light in the street because we're not living in our homeland. You you don't want your menorah to get stolen. You don't want people graffitiing swastikas on your house. So we light in the house. We light in the house in America and outside the land of Israel. But the question is where? Do you fulfill the main part of the mitzvah, which is advertising the miracle to the people in the street? Or do you light next to the door and opposite on the left side of the doorpost close to the ground, which is the other part of the mitzvah, which takes priority? So what do you guys think makes the most sense? So most people, most people light in the window, and that really makes the most sense. Why, Julia? Right. So if you light in the window, then you're actually doing the purpose of the mitzvah, which is to share the the miracle with with the public. Right, um, but if you uh, and and to answer your question, Rebecca, we just said a little while ago that in Israel people light inside like a fish tank, like a glass a glass uh, box to keep the candles from going out. But um, on and if you light inside, then you're only displaying the miracle for your family. So let's ask a different question in order to answer this question. When do we light? So you guys mentioned a couple, and we already said, a couple of different customs. The Talmud says the main time to light is from the time that the sun sets until people stop being present in the marketplace. So you have a window of time which is basically from sunset until a half hour after nightfall. Because after that time, people are not around. And then no one's going to see it. That's the Talmudic law. So, and there are people that light at various times within that time. Some light right before sunset, some light right after sunset, and some light like after praying, the evening prayer which is right after sunset, more or less, and then they get home, so about 20 minutes after sunset, and then they let it burn for that half hour after nightfall. So, so according to this, that's the time you have to light. But what do we do nowadays? What happens if you come home late? Can you light after that window of opportunity? You should. Why? <laughs> so someone might see it. So the answer is, Steph is correct, that nowadays we say that that time is not really so strict because there are people out all the time, right? Now, within reason. Right, so up until a certain time, there are for sure passerbys in the street that could see it. Right, we our night because of electricity, our night is not as early as their night. 
people are driving until 12 midnight, no problem, right? But the question is, is, is asked, and so, so in general nowadays, people aren't as strict about the time. But let's say we're going back a few hundred years ago when, when there weren't, wasn't electricity. So what happens if you come home late at night and there's no one out on the street? What do you do? Or let me ask you a different question before we answer that one. What if you live in the woods? Can you light the menorah in the woods? There's no one going to see it. And it has to be a person. <laughs> so and I don't recall if it's specifically Jews or specifically non-Jews. I think it might be you should you want other Jews to see it. I'm not sure though. Um so what do you do if you live in the woods? And the answer is is that you light anyway with a blessing. Why? Because you're also advertising the, 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 the miracles for yourself. Okay? But there's a problem. And I'll tell you the contra there's, a, there's a blatant contradiction. Because many of the modern, more or less, more recent commentaries uh, say that if you come home late at night, middle of the night, and your family's asleep, can you light? in your house without a bless with a blessing. So it makes sense based on what we just said that you should be able to, right? Why? Oh wow. <laughs> Right, so she lit for him. If the wife lights for the husband, it's a different story. But let's say she didn't light for him. Let's say let's say the wife didn't light yet. It didn't light for him, or let's say she lit and didn't have him in mind, or let's say it's just a a brother and a sister, or two roommates living together. Okay, come home, two in the morning. Are you allowed to light? No one's gonna see it. So based on what we just said about the woods, what would you say? Yes. Say the modern um, halakhic authorities, no. You cannot light with a blessing. You have to wake that person up to watch you light. By the way, ask your local Orthodox rabbi before doing this. Do not wake up your roommate. So so normally when we light, we light in a normal hour that people outside could see it. But if you're lighting in the middle of the night when no one outside, there's no one outside. So you need to wake someone up to see you light, to see them, the, the candles. Zoom wouldn't, Zoom wouldn't work. Zoom wouldn't work. No. Need to see the actual candles in real life. So what's the, what's the obvious contradiction between these two scenarios 
person who lives in the wood. Well, again, person in the woods, what does the person in the woods do? It's a light. Can't light. That doesn't make any sense. Can anyone think of an answer to explain the difference between these two scenarios? Yeah. Right. But if but if you're home and and there's no and the person's sleeping, you can't light without unless you wake them with a blessing. Ah, since there's a person there, you have to wake the person. Ah, Jalen's saying an excellent answer. Okay, good. And that's that's the answer I was gonna say. Uh, we'll we'll go to that in a second. But there's another answer, simple answer, even simpler answer, Jalen. What's the difference between the guy lighting in the woods versus the guy lighting in his house? Major difference, besides the other. Yeah, but what? when are they lighting? Ah, the person lighting in the woods, when is he lighting? At the normal time. The person lighting at home, when is he lighting? In the middle of the night. So if you're in a situation where you have no one around, at least do the mitzvah at the time that we're supposed to do it, and you can make a blessing. But if you're living, regardless of where you're living, if you're lighting later than the actual time, you have to make sure someone sees it. Okay? That's yes. All the way until until uh, dawn. Yeah, the first the first lightning of the sky. So so I believe the answer. I just want to take this take this in the direction that Jaylene went, and say perhaps that this is the message. Is that. The person who's alone has no other choice. They have no other choice. So they have to light for themselves. But when you live with people, the main message of Hanukkah is to share the light with others. So let's talk about these customs, okay? And try to understand the Hasidic custom as well, which doesn't seem to make so much sense. So why are we lighting close to the doorpost? close to the ground, opposite the, opposite the mezuzah, on the left side of the door, close to the ground, at night, in the winter. So all of these ideas, according to Kabbalah, represent darkness, the forces of negativity. The left represents the place of negative energy. Opposite the mezuzah. The mezuzah represents the holy side. The right side, left, represents the negative side. The ground, close to the ground, represents a place of negative negativity the dark represents a time of negativity the winter represents a season of negativity the idea of hanukkah is bringing light into the darkness lighting up the darkest places the places where the light doesn't normally get to the places that doesn't naturally feel connected that's the idea of hanukkah and When we, what we say nowadays is that the main revelation, the, re, the main advertisement of the miracle that we're trying to do, publicizing the miracle, is for ourselves and our family. That 
of for sure it's good to share with the people on the street, but we have to nowadays share the message with ourselves and with those closest to us because we're the ones that really need to hear that message. So that's why the Hasidim have no problem lighting inside because the main emphasis is on ourselves and our family. But they want to also get that extra that extra uh, idea of lighting on the left side opposite the door in the lower place because that's the way that the mitzvah is meant to be done. Now in Israel, a lot of people light outside, but others say, and the Hasidim in Israel still light indoors, say that we don't change. Once we've changed the custom, we stay that way. We and and since even though it can be done outside, and that then you can get all the different opinions. The Hasidim say that nowadays we still need to focus on our own families. In the temple, in the base of Migdash, the windows in the base of Migdash were shaped diagonal like this, so that normally if you want to catch the sunlight. Right, So you'll have an, a wide opening on the outside and a narrow opening on the inside that the sunlight will pour through and it will like like a laser focus that light and bring it into the house. But the temple's windows were shaped the opposite. They were wide on the inside and narrow on the outside. And the commentaries explain because the temple was the source of light for the world. The idea of lighting candles in the temple, the menorah brought light to the entire world. The menorah that was lit in the temple every day. So. When we're lighting, we don't have the ability to light up the whole world anymore. We've lost the power. We don't have a temple. But we do have the ability to light up ourselves and our families. And that's where we have to start. That's where our initial focus has to be. Because if we're not living it, so how can we expect to influence anyone else? So that's the idea of lighting inside the house. But Essentially, the message, I believe, is that if we find ourselves in a place of depression, how do we get out of depression? How do we, how do we get out of darkness? So Yaakov tells Yosef a secret as they're walking on the way. And Yaakov must intuit that Yosef's going on a journey, and this is not going to be an easy journey. He doesn't know what's about to happen, but he must have intuited that something was going to happen. Because Yosef is about to be betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and going on a, on a lot of challenging times. So Yaakov told him, there's a story of this, these, these el- this, this village that finds a dead body in the, in the valley between two cities. And the closest, the closest city has to go wash their hands of the blood and say, we did not kill this man. And what do they say? We actually talked about this mitzvah a few weeks ago. They say, we offered him food and we offered to escort him on his journey. And what the commentaries point out is that had they truly escorted him on his journey, and it just means walking him a few steps out of the city limits, then he wouldn't have died. So essentially, the fact that this person died means the village somehow had a part in killing him. How? Because the commentaries, they didn't escort him. Not all the way. They just didn't escort him a little bit. What's the significance of escorting someone a little bit? The commentaries explain that when you escort someone a little bit out of your house or out of the village, you give them the message that they're not alone. And you tell them, we're with you. We care about you. We're thinking about you on your journey. And in doing so, that gives the person the strength to overcome the hardships of the journey. That by giving the message to others that we're with you, we care about you. You're not alone. 
that itself will prevent them from dying on the way. Somehow that message psychologically gives us the ability to overcome hardships. There's a story of a, uh, I heard of a Holocaust survivor who was on a death march, marching for days from one camp to another. People were literally through the winter with insufficient food, without clothing, without, without shoes, without food and water. And people were just, if you fell, if you stumbled, the Nazis would shoot you on the spot. And this guy told the story that as he was walking, he felt like he was going to give up. He wanted to fall just so that the Nazis would shoot him because he felt like he couldn't go on. He was a fairly young boy. And then he had a, remembered a Hasidic teaching, I believe, from the Baal Shem Tov that said that a Jew is never alone. A Jew is never alone. Hashem is with you wherever you are. And that was the message that the Baal Shem Tov used to give his students. And the Baal Shem Tov, before he became the Baal Shem Tov, before he began the Hasidic movement and publicly revealed his teachings, he was just, a, he was an orphan, actually. And his job was to escort the children from the village to the cheder, to the school, to the yeshiva. And he used to walk with the village, the boys through the woods. And he used to always tell them, there's nothing to fear but Hashem. If you recognize that Hashem is with you, there's nothing to be afraid of. And they tell a story of a of a wolf that attacked with the Balshantos of these boys, and he told the kids, Don't be afraid. And he basically fought off the wolf. And again, the message is that we have to recognize that we're not alone in this world, that our struggles are with a purpose, and that Hashem is with us in our in our journey. So when the message that Yaakov was telling Yosef is a message of how to survive the darkness of our life. And that is by acknowledging that we're not alone in our struggle. So if a person, and and there's, there's another message there hidden in that, and that's that we have to share that message with others. We have to share with others that they're not alone. And tell other people that we encounter in our journey that I'm here with you. So when, uh, if a person is lighting their menorah alone, if they live in the woods, so they don't have anyone in their life. So they have no choice but to uplift themselves by doing a mitzvah. Do a positive deed. A mitzvah is compared to a candle. King, Sol- King, King Solomon says that a mitzvah, ne'er mitzvah, but Torah or. A, a candle is a mitzvah. And the Torah is the light. That by doing a mitzvah, we bring light into the world. We uplift ourselves by doing good deeds. If a person finds themselves in depression, the first step is to try to do something positive. Try to focus on something positive within yourself, within your life. Look at the good that you have and try to do good. By doing good, you get out of your negativity. But the best way to get out of negativity is to do good for others. Say that I said today to somebody, the definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. All right. Start thinking about others because depression in many ways is an obsession with yourself. It's an obsession with your own negativity and the own negativity in your life. Shift your focus. Think about others. Think about how you can do good for another person. If you live with others, you can't fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah on your own because it's all about bringing light into the darkness. You have to share that light. Why are mitzvahs compared to candles? 
because spirituality never never gets old. Don't then don't don't wake up your parents in the middle of the night. Not recommended. But so let's let's think about it metaphorically and then practically we could see if we could extend that to the practical. But the metaphor is that is that the idea that the reason that spirituality is compared to a candle is because a candle you don't lose out by lighting another person's candle. Right? In in physicality, if I have food and I share it with you, that means I have less. But in spirituality, my candle can light yours and yours and yours and yours and yours can light another five people and that it goes on forever and it never diminishes the original light. Because spirituality, the more you share it, the more you have. So if your family isn't into Hanukkah, so at least take the message to heart, which is share good things with other people. Julia, maybe there's a way to share the positive aspects of Hanukkah with them without throwing the mitzvah in their face. Maybe buy them some donuts and share the donuts with them. Find a way to share something that they appreciate, right? And and I think ultimately, I don't know that anyone would have an issue with the lighting of the, the menorah. I mean, maybe they would, but we could talk about that personal, privately. Okay, talk about it. Let's see. But so, so Yosef, on his way into Egypt, the the uh, Rashi points out that originally he was brought down by by Arabs who sold him to to um, to what are they called again? Um, to a different nation of merchants to Midianites and it says that they were spice merchants and Rashi points out that normally these these types of merchants were were like tar merchants or they would be transporting like very like foul spelling substances but it happened to be that Yosef was brought down to Egypt with spice merchants and Rashi says to show Yosef that Hashem wanted to show Yosef that I'm with you that don't you're not alone. There's spices. There's sweet spices with you on your journey into slavery. Now let me ask you a question. Right? Your brothers betray you. They try to murder you. They throw you into a pit. Then they sell you into slavery. And you happen to notice that there's good smelling spices. Would you be like, you know what? It's not a bad day after all. <laughs> we wouldn't notice it, right? The answer is, is we have to notice it. We have to notice the flowers along the way. They say, as you're on your journey for, through life, don't forget to stop and smell the roses, right? There are there are signs around us. There's positivity. There's silver linings in the darkness. We have to notice. We have to notice the positivity because it's there. There's always positive that you can learn to focus on. We have to learn to see the good. So. So that's message number one of Yo as Yosef goes into Egypt. The other message is that Yosef suddenly he's in jail, and he becomes the interpreter of dreams. How does Yosef know how to interpret dreams? Where do he learn how to interpret dreams? How? Okay, so somehow it's a gift that he has, but how does he know? He has. How does he even know he has this gift? Why him? Why is he the interpreter of dreams suddenly? What do, what, what do we know about Yosef? 
He had dreams. He had dreams. Why is Yosef the dreamer suddenly the interpreter of dreams? How does Yosef approach these two these two inmates in prison? He says, why do you look so down today? What's going on? He notices that they don't look happy. Yosef is the guy who went through it. He was betrayed by his brothers. He suddenly notices, wait a minute, these guys look down? What can I do to lighten up their day? I'm a dreamer of dreams? Must be I have the power to interpret other people's dreams. I've been through hardships? Must be I have the ability to help others who are going through hardships. The things that you've been through are the greatest indicators that those are the areas that you can help others who are going through those same things. The problems in our life, the challenges in our life are the greatest gifts because those are the things that we can now share with others. I heard a great story. A rabbi who was giving, I might have told you this before, a rabbi, I don't, I don't even remember who told me the story, but I heard it from this rabbi. He was giving a speech one time at a seminar and it was the end of the seminar. And this was the last speech he was giving. And he, and he was talking about how everything happens for a reason and that God is with us and everything is good. And at the end of the speech, this boy, like kind of teenager looking guy in the back with long hair gets up and he says, if God is good and if everything happens for a reason, then then why am I, why am I alive? And he like lifts up his shirt and it's like covered in scars, cigarette burns. And he says, I've been abused by my parents my whole life. Why am I, why, how, why did this happen to me? And the rabbi was like shocked. Like he wasn't expecting this. And he said a prayer like silently, like help me come up with the right answer. And then the answer came into his mind. And he said, let me ask you a question. He said, imagine if you were transported to the future 20 years from now. And you saw there were lines around the street of people lining up for this major event. And you go to the line, you say, what's this line about? They say, there's a book signing for, from a famous psychologist who just basically wrote the most incredible theory on how to solve child abuse and how to heal people from who have been abused. And you, you follow the line and you get to the front of the line and you see yourself 20 years from now signing those books. At that point, would you recognize why it had to happen to you? And the boy went home and this rabbi says that a few years later, he was at another seminar and someone came up to him and, uh, he said, Rabbi, do you remember me? He said, no. He said, remember that boy, you know, in the back of the seminar? He said, that was me. He said, I want you to know that I made a commitment that day. You know, someone told me I should go to the seminar and I made a commitment that if I didn't get a good answer to why I should stay alive, that I was going to commit suicide that night. And your answer changed my life. And I don't remember if the boy went on to become a psychologist or to, you know, run a program to help boys who have come from abusive, home, abusive homes, but uh, I, I certainly hope that he did because that's the reason why we go through suffering is to share those experiences with others. And that is the message of Hanukkah. We have to light those candles. We have to do mitzvahs. We have to light up our own candles. If we're alone in the darkness, we have to light, find a positive light in our own life. We have to see the miracles in our own life. We have to smell 
the incense around us, even as we're going into slavery, even in the darkness. But ultimately, we have to focus on doing that positivity for others, to light up other people's lives. That no matter how bad your situation is, you can find somebody whose situation is worse and do something for them. We all know somebody who's alone, who doesn't have anyone to celebrate the holidays with, somebody who's going through a depression, a divorce, unemployment, sickness. We all have the opportunity to do something positive for another person. But we have to start with also doing positive for ourselves. And that starts with seeing the positivity in our life, recognizing those those, pot, those good, good smells that are going around us. And now to conclude the idea. So, so Yehuda, just that interlude, the story of Yehuda and his daughter-in-law Tamar and all this crazy stuff. So what's the message there? That sometimes when really good things have to come in the world, into the world, they have to come through the back door. They have to come in a in a secret way. Yehuda is the father. Yehuda is the great grandfather of. Wait, Chayla, you can't stop him. This is a great ending to the class. Yehuda, who is the the harbinger, the the descendant of Mashiach. So somehow Mashiach has to come. Push it in. Push it in. Mashiach has to come through the back door. And sometimes the greatest lights, for the greatest lights to come into the world, they sometimes have to come around in a backwards way. So Yehuda, who gives birth to and Tamar, who gives birth to Peretz, who gives birth eventually to King David, brought about the lineage of King David. It had to come about in a backwards, sort of, sort of almost negative way, because sometimes the greatest things in your life have to come into your life through negativity. And that's the Medrash that says, Yosef was sold into slavery. Yaakov was sitting Shiva for his son, Yosef, who we thought was killed. Yehuda was dealing with all sorts of family troubles. And what was Hashem doing? Hashem was bringing Mashiach. Because ultimately, everything is leading us to the redemption. Everything is leading us to the light that will come after the darkness. We just sometimes have to journey through the darkness in order to get there. So I want to wish you all a beautiful Shabbos, a beautiful Hanukkah, a happy Thanksgiving, and looking forward to uh, sharing many other good times with you and uh, and your children and grandchildren. <laughs>